I mean, I guess it depends on what activists you're talking about. Some of the, our sources in Baton Rouge, you know, are not against the, the police chief and are, in fact, campaigning to support him because they recognize, in, in some ways, it's an extension of, of the, one of the oldest stories in, in the country, Jason. Like, it's, just, it's a new take on civil rights, right? Like, there was a, a period where people had to fight for rights that should have been guaranteed. And some of those rights, like voting or getting a square education, right, uh, were met. And so now the, the, the sort of the next step is to ensure that those institutions that serve all of us, black and white, northern and southern, that those institutions are, are doing a straight job. They're doing a fair job. And that is what some of the activists in Baton Rouge are looking at. They're like, okay, we have a place at the table. We have power. We want that power to be justly wielded, right? Like in the most basic sense. And so it's a restoration of the credibility of institutions that in the past were not honorable and were not living up to sort of the promises made and all those, you know, marketing materials that I was talking about earlier, America's great marketing materials. And to suddenly at the moment when you have a chance to restore credibility to those agencies and those institutions and those words. a great example. I mean, so Carl, Carl Dunn, he's now police chief over in Baker, which is a town that's next to Baton Rouge. But he was a BIPD officer, ultimately an administrator. He like was the head of um, patrol, right? He, he was there for, I think, what, 30 years, worked his way up through the ranks. And he definitely, he, he tried to do it right. And at one point he, he had a unit that was they were assigned to the like highest crime zip codes. And what he wanted them to do was he wanted them to go out and their goal was contacts, contacts with people, but no tickets, no nothing, no arrests, but he wanted a lot of contact. And that unit ultimately, I mean, it got disbanded. It, it, it didn't have any support from the department. And then he ended up leaving. So he, he tried um, and he's still trying over in Baker. From Goose Creek Consulting, this is the Silver Linings Handbook. I'm Jason Blair. That's Daryl Kahn, a practicing journalist and distinguished lecturer at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York and a specialist in investigative reporting, urban reporting, race in America, and law enforcement. That's also Clarissa Sozin, a writer who has covered local politics, the Liberian healthcare system after the Ebola epidemic, and law enforcement. Together, Daryl and Clarissa have recently turned their attention to the people who police the police. In a series of articles, Daryl and Clarissa explored Police Corruption, Misconduct, and the Internal Affairs Department of the Baton Rouge, Louisiana Police Department. 
Located on the eastern bank of the Mississippi River, Baton Rouge is the fourth largest city in the deep south of the United States and the second largest city in Louisiana after New Orleans. Baton Rouge owes its historical importance to its location on a bluff upriver from the Mississippi River Delta, which allowed people to build a business quarter that was safe from flooding and to create a levee system that protected low-lying agricultural areas. It is a culturally rich city. It's a city of immigrants from numerous European nations and African people brought to North America as slaves or indentured servants. It was ruled by the French, the British, the Spanish, the Republic of West Florida, the Confederate States of America, and twice by the United States. Baton Rouge also helped elect Devante Lewis, the first openly LGBT politician in the state government. You can find many different religions in Baton Rouge, from Catholicism to Haitian voodoo. Its main industries are petrochemicals, medical research, motion picture, and technology. It's also the home to Louisiana State University. Baton Rouge also has a darker side. Its police department was founded in 1865, just after the end of the Civil War. It has a history of police brutality against blacks and strained relations with the black community. Most recently, in 2016, two BRPD officers shot and killed Alton Sterling, a 37-year-old black man. They killed him while trying to detain him. The killing led to protests and demonstrations in Baton Rouge that led to hundreds of arrests, lawsuits against the department for violating the First Amendment rights of protesters. Less than two weeks after the killing of Alton Sterling, Three officers in the department were shot and killed in an ambush by Gavin Eugene Long, who traveled 700 miles from Kansas City to target the officers. Daryl and Clarissa conducted a close examination of internal affairs reports, dashcam videos, and other evidence. They interviewed complainants, their families, and lawyers. They uncovered questionable injuries, shootings, and other revelations. Their work has uncovered significant discrepancies between officer and citizen accounts of police abuse, discrepancies that raise serious questions about the behavior of officers involved in the integrity of the Internal Affairs Bureau of the Police Department. In some cases, officers rose through the ranks of the department and its union to positions of power after being cleared. And despite a policy requiring complainants to be notified of the outcomes of investigations, no one interviewed for the story ever received an update. Today, we're going to step back and discuss what it's like to be a police officer, the expectations of the communities being policed, the purpose of policing, the organizational culture of police departments, and their political overseers, all of which may lead to and contribute to the challenges that Daryl and Clarissa uncovered. I just wanted to thank you guys for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course. I wanted to ask you guys, just sort of starting out, a little bit about your backgrounds, how you got interested in journalism, how you got interested in policing. So I actually started off with a, an international focus. My first, well, I guess my first real journalism job was at a really hyper-local paper outside of Boston, taking photos of like senior citizen events and 
ice cream days at the library. But right after that, I was doing photojournalism in South Africa. So very internationally focused. But um, when I was in grad school, I really wanted something to sink my teeth into in New York City. And um, criminal justice and policing, I just kind of, I covered an event actually because of Daryl. I covered an event, a screening about Rikers. And then it was just, I just went down that rabbit hole. And was that when you were a student in Daryl's journalism class? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, so for you, Clarissa, really sort of the interest in policing and crime really came from deciding to sort of focus on the biggest topic that was in front of you at the time. And in New York City, that was a huge topic. How about you, Daryl? I mean, I've been in, interested in journalism since I was a kid, I guess. I was on the high school paper. Before that, I would grab the copies of the Washington Post I could find and read William Raspberry columns and George Will columns, watch the uh, the old news shows funded by Archer Daniel, Archer Midland Daniel. Daniel's <laughs> Archer Midland. Daniel's Midland. Archer Daniel's Midland, yeah. I always liked figuring out how things ended up the way they did and why things work, they work the way they do. And have always been a little bit sensitive about freedom, how we keep it, how we got it, how it gets violated. And uh, as a profession, journalism, sort of the canary in the coal mine, I guess. And I think uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you and I actually worked together at the student newspaper at the University of Maryland, the Diamondback. I think we both worked for each other at some different point. And also, we both worked at the New York Times together. And I think we shared probably, I, you may not articulate it the same way I would, but we both shared an interest in, I think, helping people, right? For you, very much protecting democracy. And for me, I think similar things. I don't know. Protecting democracy just sounds like a way to sell newspapers. <laughs> it, it's It's... Finding out what's going on, it's, it's lowercase t truth, and like that's what that's sort of the raw material, you know that yeah. that that people work with when they want to go do democracy or not do democracy or whatever they choose to do. Right? I, I, I don't know. And, and police reporting, policing is sort of the where the rubber hits the road when you talk about self governance. Right? It's like. You know, all the major amendments, the ones that we get most worked up about, first, fourth, 14th, eighth, are we securing people's liberty? Are, are we killing them in cruel and unusual ways? Are we depriving them of their liberty with, in, in a way that's fair? You know, some people look at the police reporting as sort of a roundup of local crimes, but, you know, if you just turn the steering wheel a little bit it 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 becomes you know the front the the the, the fault line you know what i mean of mm-hmm. of of like it's a roundup of our liberties in the way that we treat. yeah there you go that's that's a good way to put it and, and you know you really understand how difficult a lot of these things that we care about you know are are uh you know like when uh when you go to like to the, the you enter a state and you go to like their the little tourist board and they have all the yeah. the materials for like this is why our state's great. <laughs> all that about our country, right? All, 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 all like the 
you need to, they all play out in like really hard ways in gritty ways. <laughs> and you as a reporter need to go sh show people that the, the public interest and, and liberty clash every night in some way yeah. in any city in America. And like, I don't know, a reporter's got to be the one that goes and goes like, yeah, here's what happened. Reporting out one story, like even one minor crime story, really, if you really report it all the way out, it, it really goes into so much about life. It's interesting you say the thing about tourism boards. I remember um, when we were in when we were in college, one of our colleagues, Heidi Sherman, she was, I don't know if she was a reporter at the Diamondback or whether she was just a journalism student, but she had to go out to um, the eastern shore of Maryland, like the tippy tip eastern shore of Maryland. And, you know, it was such a long trip. It was a rural trip. So I decided to go out with her to, or she asked me to go out with her to uh, report the story. And I can't even remember what the story was, but I do remember walking into a convenience store to get gas and get food. And it was covered in Confederate flags and Confederate figurines. And I do remember at that moment thinking to myself, like, if I went to Baltimore or one of the rest stops on 95, this is not what they would have as the Maryland Tourism <laughs> Bureau listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, don't um, forget that Maryland flag is, is, is half Union, half Confederate. So, yeah. so is the state. Yep. I have. Yep. Yep. A, a flag I never want to change. So, uh, <laughs> here, here. Yeah, right. So I wanted to start off by asking you guys just a little bit about the story of the behind the publication of your articles and, you know, how did you get turned on to the case and what was happening in Baton Rouge? And I read somewhere that you guys have been working on the story for about five years, which actually surprised me and I didn't know about it. And I didn't know it was that long or didn't realize it was long. So what's the story of the story? Well, yeah, we have been working on it for five years. It's probably six, right, Clarissa? Yeah. No, we just we just passed the five year mark in March, end of March. Yeah. Um, I got there was a I posted on Instagram a photo of like New Orleans when we were flying in, and it was five years ago, I think. But uh, yeah, we had a lot of delays. Um, the pandemic mainly. Mm. We were supposed to go down for a trip um, in April 2020, and obviously that got blown up. And then a lot of our public records requests got delayed because they were, I mean, they were ravaged by Delta. So it's been a long process, but it's been good that it was delayed, I think. I don't know, Daryl, if you'd agree. Yeah, yeah. Was it Alton Sterling or was it something else that caught your attention to get you to even go down there? Yeah, I mean, that's why I would say it's 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 been longer than five years. I, I had assigned uh, two interns of mine when I was working at a different publication, um, both real, real pros who uh, went to cover the protests in the wake of the Alton Sterling shooting, um, the fatal Alton Sterling shooting in July of 2016. And um, that led to some protests, some peaceful protests there in Baton Rouge that uh, the crackdown on those protesters was sort of um, – something I'd never, ever seen before. You know, I, as you know, Jason, I, I've covered, I mean, I, I was, I covered massive, I think I've covered the biggest protests in American history. The, the, the ones in New York. Ones in New York and, and in DC. And, and, and 
I've covered just too many to count. I, I don't know if you remember back when when uh, George Bush was running his his for his second term. The RNC yeah. was at the Madison Square Garden, and for basically six months, I was on the protest beat. There were big protests. There were little protests. There were uh, leading up to it. it. It was, and and I'd never seen anything like what my reporters were sending back to me. And at the RNC, was it similar in the sense that at the RNC, you know, there were enormous protests, but the police response to it was kind of beyond the pale, as I recall. What, an RNC? Yeah. No, no. No. Nothing, no, no, no. I mean, the, the peaceful protests were, by and large, I mean, what, what happened in New York, I don't want to get off track, but what mm-hmm. happened in New York was a bunch of people who didn't deserve to be arrested did get arrested. Um, right. But it was in, <laughs> it was in, and I'm not diminishing getting, I've been arrested reporting and, and I've been, so I'm not diminishing it, but it was all in a very, um, for the most part, banal way. If you were in an area, they sort of wrapped you, they, they sort of circled you, arrested you. You know, the technocratic mayor we had didn't give a lot of, didn't put a lot of stock into Madisonian values. So you just kept people sort of in lockup, even I think in the sanitation um, Is that Mayor basement. Bloomberg? That'll be Mayor That's Bloomberg. Um, but, you know, when the violent, when, when there was violence in the, the only time I saw the police respond violently is when the protests got violent, destruction, attacking police officers, et cetera. This was not the case in Baton Rouge. In Baton Rouge, we had a, a protest that was incredibly peaceful that, in fact, like more peaceful than most even minor protests in New York, right? You often will see like a trash can getting grabbed and thrown and you know shit getting kicked over. Baton Rouge was as as peaceful a protest as I've seen, you know, reminded me of what, you know, footage from the 60s when there was, you know, um, people organizing strategically to be peaceful. Right to to demonstrate like Soma or right. yeah. Murfsburg yeah. or yeah. any the big ones small everything in between right even you think about the sit-ins where people were sort of had a sort of angelic calm in the face of, of you know people screaming and being violent and you you just had the police respond in an overwhelming overwhelming force using weapons designed for war in foreign countries. Gas masks, long guns, dragging people, uh, beating them despite them following the, the the commands that they were giving them, and um, it was the combination. It was a combination of, of, of the Sterling shooting and that response, right? Like the police had, kind of tipped you off to something's wrong in this department. Well, what's going on, right? It's just a journalistic question, like curiosity. Like, well, what's going on here? Like, how how did we get here? And that reporting revealed, I think, a lot of people telling my reporters on the ground, like, this has been going on forever. You know, this is this has been a simmering tension. Like, no one's listening to us. And, you know, that, that was it, I think. Then that, that says, okay, well, and then you just start asking, like, your basic five W's and take it from there. Yeah. But, Clarissa, I guess you can talk about um, why we were flying in that day. Yeah. Yeah, well, so we um, had we just finished covering the March for Our Lives down to to Washington D.C. 
and we were editing that video together when we found out that the state attorney general was going to announce whether or not he'd be charging the officers who killed Alton Sterling. And that was like the last line, like the, the city wasn't going to charge them. The feds weren't charging them. Like everybody was declining to like take any action. And so this was the last chance of like them facing charges. Um, and we wanted to, we just decided to get on a plane and go and see what would happen. Um, see how the city would react just kind of see what was going to happen on the ground when that announcement came out. So you had gone down to DC for the from New York. You had gone down to DC to cover the protests. March for Our Lives, that was the student gun control one, right? Yes. And then and then went back to New York and then immediately flew down <laughs> to New Orleans. Yes. It was a, a wild day or a wild week essentially. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. we booked our ticket to New Orleans like five hours before the flight took off. It was like two a.m. and we had a like seven a.m. flight. Oh wow! Yeah, it was it was a little nutty, a little a little nutty. When you got down there and you know you read the report, I guess from the uh, read what the state attorney general had to say, and you got down there. What did you find? I mean, it was really quiet. The first thing we did was head to um, the Triple S Mart where Sterling was killed because we thought some people would gather there and, and there were, there were like a handful of activists, protesters, but that was it. It was just, it was quiet. The city was like deadly quiet. Right, Daryl? I mean. Yeah. I mean, I remember a, a handful of sort of um, supportive honks from passing cars, you know? Yep. Uh, one striking image to me, Jason, was there was a guy. So the Alton Sterling encounter began with an anonymous 911 call of, of a man with the gun who was, and it was Alton Sterling who was behind a sort of a, a ramshackle table selling CDs. Just out on the street? No, in front of the triple S Mart, which okay. for New Yorkers is sort of like a bodega. It, it's like, Hey, it's a bodega with a parking lot, you know? Okay. Um, sort of we like call that a convenience store down here. Yeah, right. I forget. Seven <laughs> Eleven. You forget. Right. It's like half. It's like half Seven Eleven, half bodega. Right. Yeah. It's right. got and there's a lot of like in that city. There's a lot of activity that might happen in those parking lots. Right. It's and, and so Sterling was selling CDs the day he was killed, and when we went um, on the on the um, the day the, the the state attorney general made his announcement, there was a uh, Another guy with another sort of fold-out ramshackle table selling CDs just like Alton Sterling. Oh, wow. And and there were only a handful of protesters. Where'd you guys go from, you know, in your reporting? At this point, you have the state attorney general's report. You have the Alton Sterling shooting. And then wasn't there, right after the Alton Sterling shooting, there was a, a shooting of three police officers, right? Two? Is that no, right? no. Um, more, more. Okay. okay. More. Four ultimately died, right? Four died. Six were shot. And one, one, one died, died re recently. recently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Problems, wow. Like injuries. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so that's sort of like the raw material that you're starting with. Where do you go from there? Well, so that day at Triple S Mart, we actually met this woman named Rosalind, who's just a, I mean, she's, she's an integral part of North Baton Rouge. And she, she introduced us to the first case other than Alton Sterling that we started looking at. This uh, young man, Calvin Tony, who had been shot in his apartment complex um, by the BRPD. 
and uh, kind of the what was up in the air was whether or not he was handcuffed when it happened. Um, so later that day, Rosalind actually took us. We went and met uh, Tony's mother. And we interviewed her and Tony's sister, and we walked around the complex. And that's that's kind of really what got us going down this this path. I remember back in 2020, because I hadn't heard of the Calvin Tony story, but it, it, it was mentioned in an article. It was in the Virginia uh, Virginian Pilot, which is the Virginia Beach newspaper, and it had been a similar kind of scenario where. A black man had been shot at some point. He was, it was after he was being escorted out of the mall and in handcuffs. And one of the really interesting things about that is that the Virginia Beach Police Department apologized. You know, the officers essentially said, oh, at that moment, we didn't realize that he was in handcuffs or whatever, whatever the backstory was. How did the Baton Rouge Police Department respond to that story or incident, I guess? Well... The officer got a Medal of Valor. Oh, wow. That's the opposite of what, what you would think would have happened. Um, Clarissa, do you want to tell him about the, the close call we had there at the, at the Palm? That's the name of the complex, right? The Palm? Uh, yeah, something like that. The Palm, the Palm's Apartments, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, there had been one woman who the shooting happened right outside her apartment door. And when we went the day with, uh, with Tony's mother, nobody was in the apartment. But we went back like the next day or a couple of days later, really soon after. And we we went and we she was there. We talked with her. We interviewed her. And on the way, we actually sent a request to the Baton Rouge, to the BRPD, asking them for more info on the shooting. And geez, now like so I'm trying to remember the complete order of events here, whether or not the building manager talked to us first. We were, we were taking photos outside of the apartment after the interview, and the building manager came and told us we had to leave. And then we went with him to his office, right, Daryl? I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact order of events. Yeah, and then we, we sent the, the – um, oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. The, the guy at the press office at BRPD. Coppola. What is it? Coppola. Coppola, right. I think I may have sent – what was probably, in retrospect, a snarky comment. Uh, I, I said, we're, we're here now. I said something like, it's okay. Well, that's what the address was. Yes. And I said, we found it on our own. We're actually here now, exclamation point. And um, yeah, we, we got in, into the car and there had been a, you know how this is, Jason, when you're reporting and someone sort of is lurking in your periphery. Mm-hmm. So there was a guy that had sort of been lurking in our periphery for a while, and he, he started to smoke. And I got out of the car and uh, walked over to him and interviewed him. And he said he knew Calvin and like told me a little bit about him and told him me about sort of you know that night because uh, apparently that night was a, a, a tinderbox. Um, it, it was a really it was it wasn't too long after Alton Sterling and and like it it came close to there being civil unrest and I, 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 you know, got the guy's number. I got back into the car and almost as I sat into the car, Clarissa was in the passenger seat cause she had all of her gear. As I get into the car, Clarissa, like, I don't know how many cars did you say? 
at least six, at least six patrol cars just pulled in and they pulled in and they parked kind of haphazardly around us. Lights and sirens flashing? No lights and sirens, but they just pulled in. They screeched in. Everybody got out and they just walked straight for the spot where Calvin Tony had been shot. Oh, wow. And we just were sitting in the car and slowly backed out <laughs> and drove away. <laughs> they, they were looking for you all. Yeah. That's what yeah, we assume. Wow. I mean. No, we were, that we got, yeah. They, another member of the department told us later that um, they were, they were there to, to intimidate us. We asked like how exactly how far that would have gone, and he said, "Ah, they're probably just going to scare you a little bit." But um, what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> yes, I have no a idea. Alarming. I have no idea how easily I scare. <laughs> wow. So, what did you guys find out about Calvin Tony and his shooting? Well, the real the real thing was. There there were security cameras, there was body cameras. And so the, the real thing was like, will you guys release this? Let's clear the air. Was he handcuffed or not? Right. Uh, because so that, that was that was the angle of our story. Yeah. You would think if they had footage or body cams, that would be a simple enough question to answer through the evidence. I think this is an important moment, I guess, Jason, to note, like, we, like, the reason you go out and report on stuff isn't because you have sort of an answer in mind and then you sort of confirm what you you want your answer to be five years later six years later whatever you know what i mean mm-hmm. the story we had to report it out and as we reported it out we we learned more and sort of our assumptions or what we thought may was maybe was going on changed pretty deeply but like that's the game right that's that's what we do like we, we don't we're dealing with uncertainty and yeah. uh, you, you sort of deal with it the best you can, asking questions, trying to get answers. And, and and I think a lot of times when you go into a story, you know, if you find out that the bad thing that everybody thinks happened, that's a story. But certainly if you find out that the bad thing didn't happen, that's also a story. It's not about proving something, right? That's advocacy. Yeah, it's, finding, it's about finding out what the hell happened. And, and we started to realize that there was, right, Clarissa? I mean, I don't know how you'd, how you'd characterize it, but... This wasn't a story, you know, I think, I think the boilerplate is Southern town, segregated town, black residents are sort of at odds with the police department. Right. And like those, some of that was, was true, but only partially true because we started to realize that the police department wasn't necessarily, you know, like you, you cover these stories and you're like, oh, well, you, the NYPD says, you, we know covering the NYPD, it's, it's just it's a monstrous Leviathan, uh, you know. The police department's not a monolith. The, the police right. department was not a monolith, and even in a smaller department like the BRPD. And not only was it not a monolith, but we, we started to, the more reporting we did, the more we realized that it was a department almost uh, at war with itself. Um, uh. So to- I, I think, by the way, you're, you're actually hitting on a really good point here with your description of the way that you're reporting this story. Do you remember the concept when we were both at the times of like the toe touch story, you fly in for one day, you have a bunch of stringers, get it. 
and the headline for that story sounds like it would have been about Baton Rouge Police Department's horrible relationship with the Black community. But there's a real difference with investigative reporting, where you're able to get under the surface and see a much deeper story than that one-day story that I think a lot of journalism can be focused on. So. But yes. Yeah. That one yeah. day story was true, but the part that it would have missed was a new police chief had come into office like two months before our first trip down there together. And so that was really where everything started to change. That idea of the department, truly the point about it not being a monolith and yeah. being at war with each other. Could you guys tell me a little bit about that? In terms of, you said it wasn't a monolith. I, by that, do you mean that you know, there were folks that were problematic in some ways within the departments. There were people who were fighting against it. The new police chief didn't necessarily fit the mold of much of the department, whatever. So the new police chief was from the state police. So he had never been in the BRPD before. Um, and he took over, I think it was January 2018. So like two months before we went down. And he, I mean, what he basically started to do was, I mean, he started off with just trying to implement what was on the books already. And over time, he did also change some policies. I mean, one of the the main policies he changed during our reporting was, I know he changed a bunch of them, but one, just to talk about Calvin Tony, right? Like the video for Calvin Tony, Calvin Tony hadn't been released and it had been like months, right? His shooting didn't happen recently when we were there. It happened months before. Chief Paul now has a critical incident policy where he releases them, he releases the videos within, I don't know what the time frame is, but it's, it's a very quick turnaround. But his enforcing of things on the books has, I mean, it's annoyed part of the department. Right, Daryl? Yeah, both, you know, current and former. And, and when we started looking into the internal affairs history, right, you try to figure out a, a, a structural system-wide way to answer the questions of, of the protesters. You know what I mean? Like they're saying, mm-hmm. we're not getting any accountability. There's no transparency. Like we, they're not. What does, that, what does that process look like? Why aren't they getting accountability and transparency? Right. And, and so that's the idea of exploring, going deep and exploring why, why does the community, wherever this leads me, feel like there's this uh, gap yeah. So how do you show that instead of just tell it, right? Like, and so w- we went down the the internal affairs rabbit hole. Yep. And we got our and hands on ten years worth of files. Could you talk a little bit about what the purpose of internal affairs is and police departments and the Baton Rouge department? It's the part of the department that investigates the department. Um, so a citizen files a complaint against you, a fellow officer files a complaint against you, you do something that triggers an automatic investigation, um, such as like fire your weapon in some departments that, that would trigger an investigation automatically. They are the officers that investigate the officers. Okay. And so a natural place for you to look when you're trying to answer this question. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find? Especially like, you know, with use of force. Well, the reason I, I I brought it up, Jason, is because, you know, pulling on that thread years ago led us to what is basically one of the animating divisions and political fights playing out in the entire city. 
right? Like, you know, this sort of obscure division within a medium-sized police department has really become as galvanizing sort of, you know, uh, as, as abortion nationally. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah, like post George Floyd, and then it, also it, the shooting in Georgia. Right. I mean, similar themes in each of the. I don't. I don't know whether to say it the departments, but certainly the communities. Well, but no, but no, no. no. I, I mean specifically internal affairs. I, I, mm-hmm. You're making it even broader than it, it needs to be. Internal affairs, like the people who were there before, are some of the people leading the counter revolution against the new police chief murphy paul and his regime right and they're putting up billboards saying like this is not a safe city because of affairs the guy the guy who used to run it right so there's some former police chiefs who feel like that the uh for lack of a better word reforms uh sort of you know discipline that the, the chief is meeting out as a black guy who grew up in the South, you'll appreciate this. You know, they're they're saying that Murphy Paul is is targeting white officers with discipline disproportionately, and um, that that he's sort of running sort of a a get even kind of campaign, right? So he now the the numbers that we've looked at, and in no way that that doesn't play out. It, it all it all seems to be statistically more or less even the discipline the discipline meted out to black and white officers but the story that's being the, the the way the fight is is being seen and the way it's playing out there is that you have former white police chiefs you have uh, in particular one guy who you know he feels like the, the the police chief targeted him because he was trying to hold him to account who used to be in internal affairs and is now gone, but is still very public. You know, I, I, I've spoken to him. He's very public uh, in criticizing Murphy Paul. Was Chief Paul the first black police chief or? No. Okay. No. And he's not the first, for lack of, uh, again, I'm sorry, uh, 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 for lack of a better word, he's not the first reformer either. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there was there was one, one chief, um, Dwayne White, I forget exactly his years. I want to say they were in the early 2000s, maybe? something. Like a little that. bit later than that. A little bit later than that? Yeah. He he tried to also kind of reform and, and, and looked into internal affairs. And he got run out of the department. They like unearthed text messages between him and his mistress. And like it just. When yeah. she says they, she means the police department. The police department did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that they they took the woman's phone and they yeah. published the text as a part of a official investigation or the official, semi-official, formal, informal, all of the above. They got rid of him. Yep, a, a, a black mayor who many in the sort of civil rights kind of political community in Baton Rouge say was sort of. Very much a supporter of, of of the police union, who which obviously is against was against white the same way he's against Murphy Paul um, fired him. So we have a police department that has a history of running out chiefs reformers, revolting against them. You have 
these incidents with black men or violence against black men that are a problem. Just curious from my perspective, did the issues that exist go beyond just black men and just more broadly into the community? Yeah. Well, um, in our main story, we, we talk about, um, this young man, Brett Perkle, um, and he's white. And actually I think everybody in that story, all of the people who were, um, had an encounter with this one officer, um, they were all white. Tell me about the one officer in your main story. What what it, it focuses on him and his interactions with them over a long period of time, interactions with the community? Yeah, so this guy, um, his name is Robert Maruzzi. And he, so he, he has a, an interesting history. It's, it kind of starts with him allegedly pulling a gun on a uh, bar manager when they're arguing because he's trying to steal a sign from the bar that's hung up outside the bar. The police officer is trying to steal the sign? Yes. The police officer is drunk and off duty and pulls his gun on this bar manager. And his oh, wow. buddy, who's also a police officer, who's with him, has to like restrain him and throw him. There's there's surveillance video of it. He's like, they put him in a pickup truck. He climbs out of the pickup truck. like, it, And so he gets fired for that. But then he actually gets reinstated back to the force. And then a few years later, he uh, the the young man I mentioned, Brett Perkle, he bashes Brett Perkle's teeth in during a, a raid for marijuana. Um, oh Brett, wow! Brett's at his friend's house, and they're just playing music, and his friend is the one with the weed, and they come in, and Brett's face just—I mean, he, he's still missing teeth. He like, and uh, well, he wants to get taken out. He's got fake teeth, but they're hurting him, and uh, so he does that. He then there's an LSU student who he tasers because the LSU student's drunk. And he there's another woman that's mentioned in a deposition. We don't really know the full details of that, but that was a, a traffic stop. But yeah, he just – he kind of keeps having these incidents. The the Brett Perkle case, I mean, the, the city lost in federal court. Perkle sued and won. Is that how he got reinstated or did he get reinstated? He got reinstated before, years before, right, Daryl? Yes. Yeah, he got reinstated years before. Was that by the police chief, uh, civil yes. service board? Okay. Yeah, he got reinstated by the police chief. Black police chief. Yeah. Chief Leduff. Who is also the chief who decided to fire him, or was it previous chief? No, it was, uh, no, same one. Okay. Was he under pressure? Is that why he decided to do it? or We tried to talk to him, Jason. He, he didn't return our calls. Okay. You know, there there are some... There are some statements in the in, in the internal affairs report that go into why they 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 all seem a little bit um, and in the deposition. Yeah, and in the deposition, what were those reasons? He had to go visit his sister and couldn't go to the to meeting the to the hearing. What we've heard and what we've been told is is that he who's the he that you're talking about the the police chief at the time. The black, the, the, I think, I think Chief Ladoff was the first black police chief in, in Baton Rouge history. He, he, uh, you know, what what people have told us is that he he was facing pressure. He wanted to keep the peace, and so, you know, he 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 brought him back into the fold. But keep the peace in his department. Within his department, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
the thing I haven't mentioned yet, though, about Maruzi is he he then became the department's representative on the civil service board, which is where oh, wow. if you get disciplined, you go and appeal your discipline. If you get fired, if you get suspended, whatever. That's so he was the police representative on that board. Who was he appointed to that board or elected to that board? He's elected by the union. Okay, um, elected elected by his by his by his fellow officers. Yeah. So it's essentially a situation where the officers themselves are voting a guy who has a long and probably public history of questionable behavior onto the board that reviews people who have questionable behavior. Yes. That's yeah, very they succinct. Can, they reelected him during all the George Floyd protests that one summer. Wow. Yep. Wow. Now he stepped down. He, you know, one one thing that we sort of go into detail not in, in this story, but in one that's going to follow. It's sort of a a follow to this IA investigation. He stepped down, and then the the gentleman who I mentioned before, who was in IA, he took over. The guy who sort of spearheaded the 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 resistance to Chief Paul's regime, and then he was in that same position that Maruzi was in for a while, and then he too stepped down. Oh wow! You mentioned a federal lawsuit. What was that, Clarissa? That you were talking about? Uh, that was oh the Perkle one. Yeah, yeah. So Perkle Perkle sued the department. He, he sued the department for a few abuses. And he he won, he won. Um, he didn't get much money. He got like I think twenty five thousand dollars, but uh, he did. He he won in federal court. Oh wow! So you're saying that this is going on within the department pre George Floyd, during George Floyd, it's sort of um, the department itself or its officers reaffirm their support for for people who are sort of a part of this counter revolution against what we've been. What we've been seeing, has the department had a long history, I'm sure you guys have looked into its history, a long history of challenges like this? And is and the other question is, is it singular? Is Baton Rouge unique or worse compared to, if you know, compared to what else is out there in similar departments? I guess what I'm getting at is there other chiefs? Facing this balancing act where they're trying to do reform, but their biggest risk is, or one of their big risks is their department revolting against them. Something, and and part of the reason why I'm asking is that's not something that we normally see in the news. We hear about the communities sort of revolting against them, politicians, but I don't read often about departments, you know, revolting against major police departments. That's a whole lot of questions you just asked. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, so uh, I, it was my White House press conference question. Yeah, got to get them all in. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know the answer to this question because there's so many police departments. There's a hundred quadrillion police departments in the United States of America. Some with like five cops, and some with thousands. And I know. Uh, so you know, the, I don't, I can't answer your question. I, I, I would love to find out. I would love to do this kind of reporting in other cities, and yeah. and find out, right, Jason? I mean, I, and and then the question is really, I, I think 
Baton Rouge is a national story, and it's a very important national story. Because um, as you know, b- policing can be policing and crime can have a, a wildly disproportionate influence on elections of all stripes, right? And we we sort of care about it a lot intensely for a while, and then don't give a shit, and then suddenly something happens again, and we care a lot again. And so, what I think Baton Rouge does for the rest of the country is say, "Hey, man, like this is what this is what it looks like when you start meeting out discipline, when you try to conduct audits on you know uh, body camera footage, when you start you know having a a honorable internal affairs process that's independent from the guys being investigated." You know, this is what kicks up. This is what sparks fly. Yeah. Right. And you don't, you know, often what you see, the sort of dreary pattern is a loudmouth progressive politician, a city council type person or something, makes a lot of noise, passes something that may or may not make any kind of sense. Yeah. Right. Some sort of external, external yeah. imposed law. That is so divorced from the reality of what their job is. It, it may pass because it's this it's a blue city and it does nothing to change behavior whatsoever at all. And then, you know, they take a victory lap or even worse, you know, like in New York, there was a, a, a very poorly written chokehold law, which is no longer in the books, but was briefly, you know, that was going to lead to police officers having to resort to breaking joints in order to subdue a, 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 an arrestee because they weren't allowed to, to, to basically touch them above the rib cage. It's like, you know, it's. Yeah. That it's actually going to perversely create a even worse problem or a situation where I, as a cop am going to just not arrest that dude because I'm going to have to get physical and I'm going to end up being the one. Yep. Yep. Right. I mean, one, one thing that I was, I, I learned recently in, in a class I teach about sort of civil rights, civil rights reporting and sort of how you can apply it to the modern day. Um, we had a, a police officer come in and talk about that she, she was finishing up, you know, she was almost at her 20 years. And when she started in the academy, the guy training her, it's like, right, you go back 20 years and you go back another 20 years, right? There's a guy training her. And he explained, like, you know, as you know, Jason, from working in New York, that chokehold is, is, is shorthand for, you know, almost a civil rights movement in, in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, do the right, do the right thing. It, it, the, the, the Spike Lee movie is about a, a notorious, in some ways, about a very notorious chokehold. Right. It didn't start on Staten Island with, what's that guy's name? I can't remember it. With, the, uh, with Eric Garner. But, 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 but what she learned and what she was able to tell me, which I'd never heard before, was that that chokehold was in fact a response to the shooting of a little kid, right? Really? In the 60s. Yeah. And the idea was like, well, we, we want to reduce lethal force. So we're going to use like these holds and the holds were a reform, right? And And it's an important thing, I guess, maybe just whether you're on the right hand, the right or the left in the political spectrum, you know, 
we're always sort of inheriting a world as broken as we may think it is from our perspective that's probably a world of reforms that were made in another generation. <laughs> right. Well, if right? you think about it, yeah, it jumped to New York in the 1970s. They had the Knapp Commission. In the 1990s, yep. they had the Mullen Commission, all driven for the same purpose, right? Exact same purpose. Their goal was to improve police accountability. And, you know, I remember police officers when we worked there together and we covered police saying, you know, perhaps for a moment it improved accountability, it inserted problems, and it also harmed morale. You know, there were also tough economic times in New York at different points. Salaries didn't go up enough. But essentially, we end up, you know, in this same place over and over again, maybe it's a different thing. It's a shooting, it's a taser, it's a chokehold, but we end up in the same place. Is there something, and you may not be able to answer this question, but fundamentally wrong with our concept of policing and their relationship with the community and politicians and leaders? Because, I mean, to me, it all smacks of a failure of thoughtful leadership whether that's the city council or the police chief or the mayor or community activists, like we're putting band-aids on things that 20 years later, like the point of the officer you described are going to be leaking, creating their own problems. Well, I mean, that's, you just described the whole, the whole shebang there. I mean, that's, (laughs) you know, all I can say is journalists, we're supposed to report back on all those fronts, (laughs) The activists, this, the legislature, the executive, I think you mentioned unions. I mean, I, that's all we can do. That's what, you know, uh, uh, hopefully, you know, that I guess the, the, the danger is that there's so little good reporting going on now. There's th- that that's not happening. And us, that, you know, the fourth estate and cities around America are so depleted that they're not reporting that back. But, you know, that's, that's it. That those are all the institutions. Those are all the players. They all have different agendas. They're they're not, you know, the important thing is that you don't, you, a citizen, don't get, confuse propaganda with meaningful change. Well, what is the role to that point of journalists in holding police accountable? Well, it's not just police accountable. That's but, the wrong way to look at it. Whole- the whole policing enterprise. Well, that because to, to make sure everyone's that we, right? Like the the problem with reporting saying we got to hold police accountable, it assumes that the police are constantly and always in the wrong, mm-hmm. right? And then the stories that we write are going to be like, no, 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 because the concept of accountability that I hold myself, you know, accountable for my actions, that other people are holding me accountable. Every company that goes through an audit does it once a year. Sometimes there's no issue. Sometimes there is. I think the idea that I'm getting at is if, you know, you have all these entities, right? And you're describing a situation where you've gone in and maybe the initial story looked like this and there was some truth to it, but it's much deeper. That journalists are kind of in a unique position in my mind to hold all of those people accountable. Right? The police union can't really hold the mayor accountable. The 
mayor and the city council, but what journalists can do, like you said in the beginning, is tell the small t truth. And one of the things that we know is that journalism itself has been decimated. Well, I mean, I think what you're just describing is the the boring old-fashioned idea of objectivity, which is to say you go in and you ask questions and you look at what you can get your hands on and and go out into the world where people actually live and say, you know, chief is saying, is claiming he's doing this. Is he doing it? Yep. What's being right? said, what's on the books and what's actually happening. And I, I don't think that concept is. It ain't fancy. Either. Right. I don't think it's as boring as you think, because if you listen to like, if you go into the heartland or you go outside of like major liberal cities and you hear people complaining about the media, exactly what you said is exactly what they're complaining about. Like, there's not objectivity. Just give me the facts and tell me what happened and I'll figure out my own opinion. I know among sort of like elite liberal circles, there's a push away from this idea of objectivity, but there seems to be just a disconnect in my mind. I mean, just like the same disconnect between the police department and communities, I think sometimes there's a disconnect between right-leaning and liberal journalists and the people. <laughs> so... I I, yeah, I, I I take I take your point on that that, that objectivity. I, I was wondering. So looking at it, did you get a chance in your reporting to t- sort of talk to police officers who are just on the ground doing their job, stuck in the middle of all this stuff? Yes. Yeah. And what was their experience like? I mean, that's to me one of the great uh, one of the great challenges we face as a country is the the difficulty we reporters have talking to police and that is an ouroboros of of a of a kind it's it's not always the police department's fault in some cases it is it's also not always all our fault the media but in in many cases it is and, and what i mean by that is we need to hear from them more we need there's like they they are a, a a tribe unto themselves unless you know I've spent twenty years reporting on them and I'm still an outsider sort of looking in. I have some better understanding. I go out into the places they police, you know. I I, I go out and 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 sort of the same world they go out and but you know I'm not in their precinct commands. I'm not like going and getting drunk with them every night and. And by that, I mean, they, there's the police officers who have to deal with the mess, the messiness of, 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 of human affairs mm-hmm. are basically ordered not to talk to us. And they'll get their overtime pay stripped. They'll get their right to promotion stripped. They'll lose vacation time. And nobody wants that. Nobody, nobody wants that. But we need to hear from them when something happens. Right? We need to understand. And like we don't get that understanding. I want to hear from all of these officers, right? You know, and and instead we sort of get the the, the sanitized PR version. Now, the other half of that is reporters do a, a terrible job, a lot of times, covering police and what happens out there. And it's you know it's rough out there, man. You know, a lot of reporters need to just understand what the day to day is like. Yeah, they need to understand yeah. the day to day. I mean, one one of my friends and, and, and sources in, in New York City 
cut off a reporter because, you know, the reporter was saying, oh, you know, what you're telling me about such and such isn't true. And she was like, well, have you gone out to, to my, my precinct and looked for yourself? And she was like, well, no, I haven't, but I'm hearing from, it's like, well, I'm not talking to you anymore. Mm. Right. Or like one thing that people who don't deal with arrests and use of force in their day-to-day life, which includes like, you know, as you know, Jason, I've been roughed up a lot. And like, you sort of get a sense for like, well, this is not worthy of of me complaining. This is like fog of war stuff. Mm -hmm. Do do you know what I mean? But like people look at, uh, say a a pregnant woman is arrested, right? Mm -hmm. And she's like going to do something. Maybe she's picking up her kids or whatever. And it's all very sympathetic, but she's breaking the law. And she refused to pull over or she refused to listen to commands that were lawfully given. You know, if you arrest somebody like that, like that, even though she's sympathetic, it, it doesn't mean that you as the reporter don't sort of say, okay, well, like this is, there's, there's, you know, she's sympathetic, but she didn't listen. There's more to this story. Yeah. yeah it, 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 we Too often now, especially now, man, like, Every single action of the police department or police officer takes is 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 treated like it's it's prima facie wrong, right? And like, why wasn't there more discipline? Well, like, well, because I followed the rules, man. Like, that's right. And and we as as the press need to make a a, a better effort at understanding who we're covering. Now, that doesn't mean we get you know everyone's going to say, oh, you what's the word co-opted or no, because the police officer is obviously one element in this massive drama that you cover when you cover this stuff, right? There are the people, the, the families, there are the people who are arrested, either rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. There are activists who are sort of in the mix. There are the families of the people. And if someone is killed by use of force, those family members and then other family members who come to their aid and like offer support and who have been involved in lobbying. There are state politicians, local politicians, federal politicians. There are unions. There are, right? So They're one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. If, you, 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 the, if you're a good police reporter, you can't be held captive by one point perspective because there's too many. But you can't rule one out. <laughs> you can't rule that one out. I right? think you're actually hitting on a decent point because – I think a lot of folks will say that it to your point that if you look at it from a police officer's perspective, you know, you're just being a stenographer for the police department or, you know, I, I, it it just reminds me, I, I recently, I read the story about a 10 year old boy in Wisconsin who had murdered his mother and the headlines were all, about how he was being charged as an adult. It was outrage about just this outrage about how he was charged as being an adult. And my initial reaction in reading the stories, I was like, why is everyone taking this unobjective activist position? But as I read more into the stories, I realized it wasn't about them being activists. It was about them being lazy. They didn't want to do the details. And, you know, when the details came out, he... I think we found out he uh, fatally killed his mother, shot her because 
she didn't wouldn't buy him a virtual reality headset. And wow. as the as more nuance came in the story, you thought, yeah, maybe this guy should be charged as an adult. But it was that underlying laziness there. I was curious, do you do you guys have examples of people in your reporting, whether you've used them or stories or not, of police officers that you think got into policing for the right reasons? And have they been able to do what they wanted to do? Or does the system work against that? I mean, I think we definitely know officers who got into it for the right reasons. And they've definitely had their struggles. There's like parallels between journalism and, and, and policing that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you think about The Wire and you think about McNulty. He wants to do an investigative, a big investigative project. And his editors are like, nope, we want you to do two, 300 word stories every day (laughs) and shut up. (laughs) So it's, I don't know, Clarissa, what do you think about Carl? I mean, I think Carl's a good example. Carl's a great example. I mean, so Carl, Carl Carl Dunn, he's now police chief over in Baker, which is a town that's next to Baton Rouge. But he was a BIPD officer, ultimately an administrator. He like was the head of um, patrol, right? He he was there for I think what thirty years. Yeah, almost thirty years, I think. Yeah, worked his way up through the ranks, and he definitely he he tried to do it right. And at one point, he he had a unit that was they were assigned to the like highest crime zip codes. And what he wanted them to do was he wanted them to go out and their goal was contacts, contacts with people, but no tickets, no nothing, no arrests, but he wanted a lot of contact. And that unit ultimately, I mean, it got disbanded. It, it, it didn't have any support from the department. And then he ended up leaving. So he he tried um, and he's still trying over um, in Baker and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what else would you add about him? I, you know, he he's trying to put his money where his mouth is, right? Yeah. He says, you know, he's in a. It, there's a lot of crime. It's a very very poor place. I think it might be one of the poorest towns in, in you know, in Louisiana. It's it's right up there, and um, you know, he is is an interesting guy because he he doesn't he doesn't use any sort of like. He doesn't use any of like the kind of Orwellian DEI language that's so popular right now. But he he in some ways is trying to he's trying to say, look, if you want to lower crime, you need to you need to not be looked at as an occupying force. Hmm. Right? He's a conservative guy, he's a black police chief, and he has been on the front lines of like one of the most violent cities in America. Right? He's not talking about stuff he hasn't he knows had. what he's talking about he knows what he's talking about he's got firsthand experience and he is committed to the idea that you need if you want to you know get the bad guys that you, that they need to establish themselves as as the good guys and that means behaving in a certain way right like it's absurd to hear like this he had quotas for contact without arrest or tickets right jason like it's almost the exact opposite of the Comstat regime in New York City. It's like it's the exact. <laughs> how many opposite. times can I interact with the public and yeah, not how, arrest someone? Yeah. How can I not like? How can I have a contact with people and not get money coming into our coffers? Yep. Right. It's like crazy, but that's his mission, and and you know, so I, I think that's. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's like yes. you know, 
and that's yeah. I mean, and and he's an example of law enforcement that we can get to talk to us. Yeah. yeah. And those are stories that you get to hear. Like I I, I literally can't answer that other question because I'm not doing reporting in those places. But it's also very hard. Like I understand their wariness, right? It's a double paranoia because it's the one hand. If I talk, I get in trouble. But if I talk, you might just totally ignore what I'm saying, right? Or distort right? it. I right? I have yeah. worked yeah. really hard to get the police perspective personally, like because I I so I didn't grow up in a neighborhood that was highly policed. Right? I grew up in a very suburban town that was. I mean, you barely saw the cops. And when I first started reporting on anything criminal justice or policing related, it was focused on the families of people killed by the NYPD. So I was getting a very skewed view and I knew I was getting a very skewed view, but I, it was so hard to find anybody who would talk with me. Huh. And it's just, and so I, I can see, especially like if you're a young reporter and you just, you can't get that person to talk to you, you could end up just doing some really bad reporting, yep. right? If you're unable to really learn about that side i had to really proactively like seek it out i remember when i was when i was reporting and when i was covering the police i remember i would go to you know we had amadou diallo's shooting in the bronx by the new york police department street crime unit i will never get the words 19 shots out of my head he was unarmed and uh, i heard heard it at so many protests and now, post George Floyd, you hear these comments about defunding the police. And in thinking about defunding the police, I haven't been a police reporter for a while, but I always remembered when I would listen to those protests and hear the protesters talk about what the solution was. And then I would go out into the community and cover crime or talk to people in neighborhoods. There was a very different message. The activists, you know, very focused on attacking the police department. But the little old black lady on a stoop in East New York, Brooklyn, just wanted more police. They just wanted them to stop harming unarmed black men, but they actually wanted more policing. And I'm just wondering, is this gap between, I think, what activists and politicians are saying and what communities really want and need part of the reason why we can't get reform right? I so my my favorite, not my favorite, but I was covering politics in New York during the George Floyd protests, um, specifically on Queens. And I remember there was a city council member for <laughs> a city council member out in uh, the Far Rockaways, and he was running for a borough wide office. He was he was going to become the the borough president. That's and, like a county in New York. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, he wanted to like run the county, and um, his district, though, for decades, had been fighting for a new precinct because their precinct was overstretched, and they really wanted a second precinct. They wanted faster police responses. They wanted more cops, and they'd finally gotten it approved like pretty recently. So he runs for borough wide office starts to cater to the like white progressives who are, are like a strong voting block in like Long Island City and Astoria starts to become more defund the police, right? Ultimately, his district loses the funding for their precinct. Oh man. 
the funding for the precinct then gets put towards a community center that already existed in a different district. So it's not even like they then built a community center in their district. It's like it gets put in another district. <laughs> Man. Um, and then he, he, he becomes borough president and uh, the new city council member who wins in the special election, she, she ends up getting the money back. Um, and I don't know where that stands now, but she was like, no, we, we want that precinct. Like, <laughs> um, but that was a great example in my mind of like the complete disconnect between like the activists and like the communities that like were really getting policed. It was just, it was a great, it was, it was, it was fascinating to watch play out. Wow. And I also remember like there were city council members in the Bronx who were getting like threatening phone calls from activists, but like they were like, yeah, it was wild time. But it's almost like listening to the carnival barkers. <laughs> Maybe the politicians need to go door to door in their own neighborhoods too. How about you, Daryl? Are there? Do you think that there's a gap in in what activists are calling for and what people in communities really want and need, and 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 maybe a gap in what journalists are reporting? I mean, I guess it depends on what activists you're talking about. Some of the our sources in Baton Rouge, you know, are not against the the police chief and are in fact campaigning to support him because they recognize. In some ways, it's an extension of, of, of the one of the oldest stories in, in the country, Jason. Like it's just, it's 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 a, it's a new take on civil rights, right? Like there was a, a a period where people had to fight for rights that should have been guaranteed, right? And some of those rights, like voting or getting a square education, yeah. Right, uh, we're met, and so now the, the the sort of the next step is to ensure that those institutions that serve all of us, right, black and white, northern and southern, that those institutions are 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 doing a straight job. They're doing a fair job, right? Yeah. And that is what some of the activists in Baton Rouge are looking at. They're like, okay. We have a place at the table. We have power. We want that power to be justly wielded, right? Like in the most basic sense. And so it's a restoration of the credibility of institutions that in the past were not honorable and were not living up to sort of the promises made and all those, you know, marketing materials that I was talking about earlier. Right. America's great marketing materials. Way to bring it around. <laughs> so like, right. So that's, and, and, and to suddenly at the moment when you have a chance to restore credibility to those agencies and those institutions and those words, right. That you then say, ah, no, we're going to, we're going to disband it. Right. We're going to, I don't know. What is that? It's, it almost reminds me of a kind of, uh, of the kind of freewheeling anarchy in 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 the in the in the in the county notorious for uh, letting Emmett Till's killers go right the free the, the free state of Tallahatchie, a place I've done some reporting right like they I mean, they did in Mississippi yeah you know not too far away a, little, a bit north in the Delta but it, you know that in in some ways that kind of uh, right like 
complete totalitarian racist regime is is no it's no different it's just you don't care about institutions right you don't care about checks on power you just care about wielding power how you want to wield it um so i don't know man i don't know if that answers your question it does does. uh but like so yeah i think the the proof is in and the smart activists are understand the nature of the of the stakes of the fight yeah yeah. And that doesn't mean they all agree. Of course, it's like, just like police departments disagree within themselves. A- a- activists disagree, but you know, the sources we've been working with for years understand that you don't necessarily aren't going to get leadership that are, is, 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 is resilient enough to try to make hard changes, right? All of us, it doesn't matter what your job is. I want you to think whoever's listening to this about your job do you want your job to be easier when you go in and as frictionless as possible? Or do you want it to be as embittered and brutally conflict ridden as possible? Right. right. All of you are no different than these guys, right? They want their jobs to be easy. So when someone decides to make their job hard to make a difference, it means something. Right. And I think that's what's happening in Baton Rouge. And like they understand the moment and they want to take advantage of it. So one and, last- and make no mistake, Jason, like that, this is this is a fight with with consequence. Like there there have been uh, threats. I mean, right? Some of this is politics, but some of this is 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 real threats and real danger of of uh, against the chief and and against his family. So I mean, the stakes so are high, man. That actually, you know, I wanted to ask you one last question before we before we close. Do you think Chief Paul is going to be successful? I don't know. I guess it depends on how you measure success, man. But, you know, once you start pointing a country or an institution or an agency in a direction, sometimes it's hard to go back in the other direction, right? Yep. You can look at at some of the, the titans of the civil rights movement, the names we know and the names we don't. And, like, can you say that they got everything they wanted? No, no. But did we head in a direction that's better? For sure. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's I think that's what we're looking at here. Well, I wanted to thank both of you guys for joining me and give you a chance to throw any closing remarks or or just anything about lessons you think people can learn from your stories and these types of stories. I don't really. I don't know if I have anything else to add. I mean, I don't know if we ever said our stories on Verite News, a New Orleans publication. Yeah, we're really excited to really uh, excited. Finally, five five years for I guess more for Daryl. Five <laughs> years later. Yeah, we're really excited that they've decided to partner with us and yeah. and, and we, we, okay. we look forward to working with them for a long time. They're, they're a new publication in, in, in New Orleans and uh yeah. I guess the one thing I'd say to Jason I'll, is I'll drop a, I'll drop a link in the show notes. Beautiful. Um I guess it just in terms of closing comments, like it, we journalism, like I said, man, it's not, it's, it's, it ain't, it ain't rocket science. It, it, it's just going out and talking to people, but you got to talk to a lot of people <laughs> and you need to, you need to bring all those points of view out into the open. Yeah. And like, you know, what, what we're, what the, the reporting that we've done is sort of just the most throwback kind of 
basic get off your ass shoe leather reporting, I guess. Like, it, it, you know, that, that still is what makes a difference in my mind. And, you know, hopefully these the stories aren't, people understand that these stories aren't, you know, pro-police or anti-police or, but they're ex, exposed that, you know, in this completely messy system of government that we have. That change doesn't usually come just with the bill. It doesn't come with a tweet. It doesn't come with a protest, right? Or a billboard. It is this. It is this raucous mess. <laughs> and like the more I think people who care about these things understand, like if you're not if you're not looking at a raucous mess of some kind, then, then, then there's, there's, there's some dimension that you're missing. Well, right. To add to that, you can't, you don't know the story. You can have an d- idea of what you think it is, but you have to, with that mess, you have to be open-minded that you might actually be making a left turn when you thought you were making a right. Thank you all for joining us for this conversation with Clarissa Sozin and Daryl Kahn. We're looking forward to being with you all again on the next episode. I'm Jason Blair. And this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast.